I know many of you will be watching the debate tonight because you care so deeply about this country and have nothing better to do. You're asking yourself important questions like, what will the rules of the debate be? If I down a shot of whiskey every time someone says something stupid, will ambulance service be available? And if I put Monday Night Football's Saints-Falcons game in the picture-in-picture, picture, will my girlfriend realize how shallow I am and ditch me for some serious guy who actually gives a damn? So today, as a public service, The Daily Wire presents this list of debate rules as officially established by the Commission for Presidential Debates in conjunction with the producers of Storage Wars and the guys who wrote the last episode of Lost. Rule 1. The audience of the debate shall be fairly divided between the two candidate supporters. One half of the front row seats shall be reserved for billionaire businessmen who are giving millions to Hillary Clinton because they know she can't be bought by billionaire businessmen, but will be totally fair to the poor, which is what they totally care about. Totally. The other half of the front row seats shall be reserved for women Bill Clinton has assaulted. Rule two. The first opening statement of the debate shall be made by Hillary Clinton in a screechy, haranguing voice that will make you feel like you've been condemned to spend eternity in a small room with your ex-wife's mother. Criticizing this hellish sound will be considered sexist, as will putting your fingers in your ears and shouting the words to the song Skyfall in hopes of drowning Clinton out. Afterward, Donald Trump will make his opening statement, which shall consist of a series of random phrases that include the words America, strong and winners, all of which will be accompanied by weird little hand gestures that make you think of what Don Corleone would look like if he was having tea with the Queen of England. Uh, maybe that last one is just me. Rule three. Mrs. Clinton will score points according to how many lies she can string together in sequence before falling into a helpless coughing fit, then collapsing to the floor in a twitching heap while foaming at the mouth and shouting a series of nouns generally recognized as slang words for parts of the female anatomy. Candy Crowley will then rush on stage to explain that this is the sort of thing that women have to put up with every damn day, not to even mention men leaving their underwear on the floor and neglecting to replace the toilet paper when it runs out. Donald Trump will score points on how many vicious personal attacks he can unleash on obscure journalists who have said mean things about him at any time between 1982 and today. When the debate is concluded, the voters will then be free to decide who would make the better president, Drew Brees of the Saints or Matt Ryan of the Atlanta Falcons. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-dee. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. The greatest 30 seconds on, in the podcast universe, I think, we can safely say. I think the one second where that nude girl turns into a girl with, you know, cupcakes and all that, I think that's, that may be it. That may top the podcast. All right, we're back after a just disastrous Clavenless weekend. Uh, people were killed in terrorist attacks. Murder rate is skyrocketing. Arnold Palmer died. And I have a terrible cold, which I think is maybe the worst. Arnold Palmer, that was that was really bad. I mean, the guy was, was getting up there. But fortunately, to uh, calm the hearts of the nation, Barack Obama tweeted out this picture in tribute to Arnold Palmer. Look at this. This is, he, he does this every time somebody dies. It's like a picture of Barack Obama 
hitting a golf ball while Arnold Palmer looks on with admiration. It's like Arnold Palmer died. This is a good time to think about me. I'm thinking about me. You know, it's like it's like if, if Abraham Lincoln came back to life, you know, there'd be a picture of Barack Obama contemplating a picture of Abraham Lincoln. It's like you know, he puts himself at the center of everything. All right. So before I devolve into a bubbling pool of snot, <laughs> which you can't, you won't be able to see because it's going to happen later, later in the show. So you've got to subscribe. This is just another reason to subscribe to the Daily Wire. You can watch on Facebook and YouTube for 15 minutes when I should be able to hold myself together. But then you are cast into the exterior darkness. Well, then I begin to slowly, slowly devolve, dissolve. And you have to come over to the Daily Wire, or you can download us on iTunes and SoundCloud. But you can only listen to the sound of my voice as it starts to bubble and you start as I disappear. But if you want to watch the whole show, you subscribe. You can watch the entire thing. If you subscribe now, I believe they're giving away. Is this right? They're giving away free copies of my book, yeah. The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, which you really, the reason I got a cold was I've been out there promoting it. So if you don't go out and buy it, you're essentially letting me, you know, dissolve into a pool of snot in vain. You know, I mean, it's like it's on you now, folks. It's like, so, so yeah, the great good thing a secular Jew comes to faith in Christ. I am being attacked by everybody now. First, I was first I, I've been attacked by the alt-right. So the anti-Semites have been after me all this time. And now the Jews are after me because I converted from Judaism to Christianity. And now I'm getting some attacks from Christian people because of my reading of the Bible, which I'll, I'll get back. If I have time, I'll get back to that later. We will have the great, our great cultural correspondent. We have launched a satellite to get our great cultural correspondent, Michael Knowles, to come on by remote from the writer's room 25 feet away. So once that satellite is in orbit, we should be able to, hopefully, we should be able to bounce our signal off it. So I, I think there's some show on television tonight besides Monday Night Football. The debates are on. Hillary Clinton is about two points ahead in the national polls, which Nate Silver is saying, he's, not, he's saying she has a slight lead, that Hillary Clinton has a slight lead, but it's really, she can't count on it because there are all kinds of other factors. The trend is toward Trump and, you know, the, uh, there's just a lot of undecideds out there. So 2% in the polls doesn't mean that much. He says, Nate Silver, this is the uh, pollster at 538. And I, I like him because the left liked him because he predicted Obama the whole time. And so he was reassuring to them, but now his reputation is on the line. So he can't reassure them at the cost of his reputation. So he's got to get it right. He says Clinton should be worried about the fact that Americans co come to view the race as one between two equally terrible choices instead of Trump being uniquely unacceptable. So funny thing about this, all right? On the, on the weekend, here is a story written on CNN by their left-wing guy, Brian Stelter, okay? On the weekend leading up to two, 2016's first presidential debate, four news organizations came to a similar and sweeping conclusion. Donald Trump lies more often than Hillary Clinton. In a normal election year, this would be extraordinary. On Sunday, editors and reporters at the newsrooms used another word, necessary. The New York Times story, A Week of Whoppers, came out first on Saturday. Then Politico, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times all followed within hours. Several of the editors who were involved said the timing was a coincidence. But there was clearly a desire to publish stories before Monday's debate when Trump and Clinton's truthfulness will surely be at issue. Never in modern presidential politics has a major candidate made false statements as routinely as Trump has. The LA, these are people talking about a race in which Hillary—I just want to remind you, this is a race in which Hillary Clinton exists, okay? This is not just a race of—okay, the LA Times declared that. 
And Politico magazine's team analyzed every statement made by both Trump and Clinton for five days and said the conclusion is inescapable. Trump's mishandling of facts and propensity for exaggeration so greatly exceed Clinton's as to make the comparison almost ludicrous. This must have been the five days during which Clinton was suffering from pneumonia and couldn't get out, okay? The words almost ludicrous ricocheted around Twitter. Politico found that Trump averaged one falsehood every three minutes and 15 seconds uh, over nearly five hours of remarks. This goes on and on and on. However, says left-wing Brian Stelter of CNN, of the left-wing Los Angeles Times, New York Times, and, and Politico, he says, however, there's no indication that the Clinton campaign was involved. Marty Barron, the executive ed editor of the also left-wing Washington Post, said the timing of the stories was a coincidence. We don't coordinate coverage with anyone else, he said. Okay, so our pals at hotair.com just happened to wander over to the Hillary Clinton website, and what to their wondering eye should appear but the exact story, all the information that's in those four left-wing newspapers' websites, okay? So here's from Hot Air. In a, oh, no, I'm sorry. Here's from the Clinton site being quoted by Hot Air. In a pre-buttle to the first presidential de debate, Hillary for America officials today released a damning list of Donald Trump's most discredited lies from the campaign so far and said that repeating these false claims would make it impossible for, get, for him to get a passing grade in Monday's critical test before the voters. According to PolitiFact, a whopping 70% of Trump's claims are untrue. The left-wing website, PolitiFact. Okay, so this is like, this is an amazing thing. It's like, obviously, Hillary Clinton and her left-wing cronies in the press have gotten together. Look, I'm not, I'm not calling uh, Donald Trump a fountain of truthiness or anything like it. That has nothing to do with it. But Hillary Clinton has not opened her mouth without lying since I think it was 1968, right? There's a moment they caught her on tape. She said, oh, my, my shoe is caught in a grate. And that was true. I think that got like, you know, only one Pinocchio because she wasn't actually caught in a grate. She was caught in a... But ever, ever since then, everything she says has been a lie. So what they're doing is they're playing the press. They're pressuring the press to make sure that the moderator of this debate, while the debate is going on, is pulling a Candy Crowley and correcting anything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. So here's Robbie Mook, Clinton's campaign uh, manager, talking to George Stephanopoulos, pitching, you know, th that the press should skew the debate. What we're concerned about is that there might be some sort of double standard here. You know, Donald Trump can't lie on that debate stage and, and win or, or even get a passing grade. Uh, Donald Trump cannot uh, demonstrate that he doesn't have a command of the issues and get a passing grade. Um, so all that we're asking is that Donald Trump show that he is ready to be president of the United States. You guys have been pushing that pretty hard, this idea of a double standard and saying it's up to the moderator to point out falsehoods. But the debate commission has been pretty clear that they think it's the job of the moderator basically the way just ask the questions. Well, all that, again, all that we're asking is that if Donald Trump lies, uh, that it's pointed out. It's unfair to ask for Hillary both to play traffic cop uh, with Trump, uh, make sure that his lies are uh, corrected, um, and also to present her vision for what she wants to do for the American But isn't that people. what a debater is supposed to do? Well, I, I, I think Donald Trump's special. We haven't seen anything like this. We normally go into a debate with two candidates who have a depth of experience, who have rolled out clear, concrete plans plans uh, and who don't lie, frankly, as frequently as Donald Trump does. So we're saying this is a special circumstance, a special debate, uh, and Hillary should be given some time to actually talk about what she wants to do to make a difference in people's lives. She shouldn't have to spend the whole debate correcting the record. 
So, so let's get this straight. First of all, there's George Stephanopoulos, right, former Clinton operative, so another left. Even he is saying, whoa, whoa. So let's get this right. The way, way Robbie Mook pictures this debate is Hillary Clinton gets to put forward her positive, you know, proposals for America, how she's going to make America different and, and great by doing the same thing that's been done for the last eight years to get us in the mess we're in that she's running against. She's running against that mess, but she's going to do the same things, and it's going to, all going to get better. She's going to get to do that while... Donald Trump dodges bullets from the moderator who's asking him like about his, you know, the truthiness of the truthfulness of his uh, statements. This is an amazing thing. Now, even Janet Brown, look, the Presidential Debate Commission picks these moderators. They're all left wingers, except maybe Chris Wallace, who's pretty fair. He's on he's on Fox. He's one of the more left wing people on Fox. But still, he's pretty fair. Even she, Janet Brown, the head of this commission, comes on and being questioned by this left-wing Brian Stelter on left-wing CNN, she says this. What about the issue of fact-checking that's been talked about so much in the past few weeks? Does the commission want Lester Holt to fact-check? The commission asks independent, smart journalists to be the moderators, and we let them decide how they're going to do this. But I have to say, in our history... The moderators have found it appropriate to let the candidates be the one, ones that talk about the accuracy um, or the fairness of what the other candidate or candidates might have said. I think personally, if you start getting into fact-checking, I'm not sure what is a big fact, what's a little fact. And if you and I have different sources of information, does your source about the unemployment rate agree with my source? I don't think it's a good idea to get the moderator into essentially serving as the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I think it's it's better for that person to facilitate and to depend on the candidates to basically correct each other as they see fit. Now, I, I just want to make it clear that everybody in the press and this in the mainstream press is on Clinton's side. They may not like her, they may not trust her, they may not believe her, but they want her to win. And the fact that Trump is as close as he is, is a rebuke to them. It's a rebuke to this fantasy world they've been selling us. Listen to this. You know, actually, I'm going to go into this uh, really interesting collection of quotes from Newsbusters. But first, we have to say goodbye to our friends at Facebook and YouTube. So come on over to The Daily Wire and hear what comes next. And we'll have Michael Knowles, our cultural correspondent from the writer's room. Charge. Okay. (laughs) Charge. Uh, I'm not sick, and I didn't send any classified emails. Everything is fine. Um, okay, so here, here Newsbusters puts this series of quotes out from journalists. This is the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd, we all know, left-wing journalist, but who has been a consistent critic of the Clintons as being dishonest and being bad for feminism. She says, my friends won't even read any interviews I do with Trump. If I do interviews with Trump, they won't read them. And basically, they would like to censor any stories about Trump and also censor any negative stories about Hillary. They think she should have a total free pass because, as she said at that fundraiser recently, I'm the only thing, she's the only thing, standing between you and the abyss. So that's the readership of the New York Times doesn't want to hear it. That's why the Times looks like it looks like. That's why their front page is an ad for an anti-ad against Trump and for Hillary Clinton. And the guy, the I, I can't 
uh, remember his name right off the hand, but the lead editor of the New York Times said, well, don't look at the, just the front page. Look at the rest of the paper. You know, we have stories inside the paper. All right. So here, here, yeah, oh, great. So here's a Washington Post editorial basically saying, do not treat these candidates equally. It's Washington Post editorial, one of the four, you know, the four horsemen of the collaboration. That's what we'll call them, the four horsemen of the collaboration. Judging by the amount of time NBC's Matt Lauer spent pressing Hillary Clinton on her emails during Wednesday's National Security Presidential Forum, this is the picking on Matt Lauer by way of sending a warning to the rest of the press. One would think that her homebrew service was one of the most important issues facing the country this election. It's not. Imagine how history would judge today's Americans if, looking back at this election, the record showed that voters empowered a dangerous man because of a minor email scandal. In other words, left-wingers think left-winger lies are not as bad as right-winger lies. Congratulations. Good for you. We're happy for you, you know. Here's the New York Times. If the moderators of the coming debates do not figure out a better way to get the candidates to speak accurately about their records and policies, especially Mr. Trump, who seems to feel he can skate by unchallenged with his own version of reality, while Mrs. Clinton is grilled and entangled in the fine points of domestic and foreign policy. Well, let's talk about <coughs> their own version of reality. Do you remember, it was uh, not last week, I think it was the week before I was reading that um, John Kerry piece they did. John Kerry, Mr. Diplomacy, Americans, Mr. Yeah. Diplomacy. You know, that was about how great the Syrian ceasefire was going to be. The Syrian ceasefire is already over. We know because everybody's dying. Also, <clears throat> let's talk about for a minute the Friday document dump by the FBI. We've got to talk about this for a second. It turns out Barack Obama was sending emails to Hillary Clinton on her server under a pseudonym. Carlos Danger. No, it wasn't Carlos Danger. <laughs> was, he uses that for something else. We don't want to talk. Now, just remember, let's go back for a minute. Remember, Obama didn't know about this email server even existed. Did you know about Hillary's Clinton use of private email server? No. While she was Secretary of State? No. It is important for her to answer these questions to the satisfaction of the American public, and they can make their own judgment. Uh, I can tell you that this is not a situation in which America's national security was endangered. And, and why is it these things are on Friday and nobody says a word? The New York Times doesn't say, hey, stop dumping these things on Friday. Give us some time. Doggone it. Give us some time to cover these things so we can be fair about Hillary's lies. About, you know, why not? Okay. So now... An IT contractor, they, they contracted these guys to get rid of Hillary's emails, to dump the emails. And he made this joke, Paul Combetta, he made this joke saying this was part of, he says it was a joke anyway, he says this was part of Hillary's cover-up operation. So let's go back to our pal, Robbie Mook, who was just before making the argument that Trump's lies are special. Trump's lies are not like Hillary's lies. Hillary's lies are magic lies. Trump's lies are bad lies, okay? So now Jake Tapper goes and he asks Mook, what's the cover-up? It was a document dump on Friday. We learned uh, from the FBI that an IT contractor managing Hillary Clinton's private email server made reference to the, quote, Hillary cover-up operation in a work ticket. He used those words after a senior Clinton aide asked him to automatically delete emails after 60 days. This IT worker certainly sounded like he thought he was covering something up, no? Look, Jake, I, first of all, I'm actually glad you asked this question because a lot of this stuff is swirling around there uh, in the ether. Uh, it's important to pull back and look at the facts here. The FBI did a comprehensive and deep investigation into this. And at the conclusion of that, FBI Director Comey came out and said to the world uh, that there was no case here, that, there, that, that they did not have evidence of wrongdoing on uh, Hillary's part. So what's the Hillary uh, cover-up operation that the, the IT worker was referring to? Well, 
Well, well, but th but this is this is the perfect uh, example of what's going on here. Uh, the Republicans on in the House side uh, are selectively leaking documents for the purpose of making Hillary look bad. We have asked the FBI to release all information that they've shared with the Republicans so we can get the full picture. But again, I would trust the career professionals at the FBI and the Justice Department who looked into this matter, concluded there was no case, than I would Republicans who are selectively, uh, selectively leaking uh, information. You got nothing, Robbie. His, his, thing, his thing is basically she's unindicted. That's, that should be their campaign pain slogan. You know, make Hillary Clinton president. She's unindicted. It's like they can have a song, you know, I'm unindicted. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's like, so I, sight of all the things I've done, there ain't no smoking gun. You know, you can't fight. You didn't know I could do this. You didn't know I could rap. Did you? <laughs> it's like, anyway, I mean, this is, this is absurd, but it is a sign of a left wing that believes they have the right to lie. For two reasons. They believe they have the right to lie because they're going to make such good decisions for you when they take all your rights away that the world is going to be a better place. That's the first thing. Obama can get up and say anything he wants, and the New York Times will support it, and they won't report it when he's shown to be a liar, shown to just flat-out, barefaced lie to the American public on 60 Minutes. Not a problem. That is not a problem because he's doing such wonderful things for you. He is making you, forcing you to do such wonderful things that he has the right to tell you that he believes what he doesn't believe, that he is who he isn't, that he, you know, he, he doesn't think, he doesn't know what he did know. He has the right to say all those things because he's just doing so much good for you. Plus, plus, at the base of the left, at the bottom of their intellectual structure, they do not believe that there is such a thing as truth. And that is always a fascist position to take. And you ask, well, why is that a fascist position to take? And the reason is because if you don't believe there's such a thing as truth, then whatever people believe becomes the truth. And if I can make you believe things, and if I can stop you from saying things, then I can win the day. You know, then that becomes the truth. And if I can stop you from saying, oh, the police were right to shoot this guy in the street, and the rioters in Charlotte are coming from, or outside agitators who are just coming in because they're communists and they're trying to start a revolution in the country, uh, you know, if I can not say that, if I can be shouted down and called racist, if I can be called sexist, if I say there are differences between men and women, if I can be called hateful, if I say a man who says he's a woman is not a woman, then those things become the truth. It is an inherently fascist point of view. So speaking of inherent fascists, we have our friend, we have our friend Michael Knowles. We're going to see if we can bounce. This is going to be tough. He's 25 feet away. But we but our satellites are no question about it. We can go we go around Neptune. I think we hit this. Wait, have we got him? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, there he is. Michael Knowles, <laughs> our cultural correspondent. So, uh, yeah, so you look a little hungover, but uh, you know we expect our <laughs> we expect our cultural correspondent to be out there, you know, with the people doing this. What's going on this weekend? What have you done? There well, this weekend, I'll tell you, my entire experience of culture was that I was working on a about the alternative right, right, which is which is now uh, up on, on the daily one. Yeah. So I spent my entire weekend with Nazis. And by Sunday, I decided I need a, a little bit of sweet love of Jesus to redeem my faith in humanity and keep uh, away from suicidal despair. So I read this book. Hey, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> this guy has nothing better to do with his life. Is <laughs> it's, it's Nazis and Ruklava. <laughs> that's that's, that's like my living room on a Saturday night, actually. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> What I couldn't believe, though, is apparently, according to this book, you used to be a pretty cool guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that chapter about you 
as a vagabond walking around New Orleans, passing out in gutters and dropping out of college. I actually didn't really know. I, I, I was not just the vagabond. That was my aspiration. It was my, it, it actually was, no, you know, you know how like some people, they want to be doctors, they want to be lawyers. This is absolutely true. I mean, I wanted to be a wanderer. I would listen, like when I was a kid, I would listen to wandering songs, you know, like uh, So Far Away and, you know, even Rick Nelson's Traveling Man when I was a little tiny kid. And I would think like, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And I did. I wandered around the country. And you're right. I, I would, the police threatened to arrest me and uh, would chase me. Uh, one guy, one cop actually would hit me with a billy club when I was in New Orleans falling asleep in the Greyhound station to wake me up. He would keep going by and hitting my, the soles of my feet with a billy club. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, an inspiring uh, part of my life, I would say. <laughs> Well, well, I'll tell you, that, that part surprised me. But the part that did not surprise me at all was... Oh, our satellite feed. Oh, no, insane. we've lost the satellite feed to the writer's room. I think our feed has frozen up. Oh, wait, you're back. Okay. Do we, is it making it from Neptune? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, the part that surprised you was? The part that uh, did not surprise me at all, actually was that you were completely insane. <laughs> you were nuts. <laughs> I was a total. I, was a t I have lived two lives. I, this is absolutely true. I have lived two lives. Until the time I was 28 years old, I was out of my ever-loving mind. I was an insane, depressed, crazy. At 28, I just cracked, like as F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, like an old plate. And I, I just, and I went and got help, and I was transformed. I mean, it was... I, you know, there was a headline once in The Onion, Psychiatrist Cures Patient. You know, <laughs> I was that guy. I was that guy. I have lived an entirely uh, different life since, since that time. And then now kind of a third life since my conversion, which has also just been better and better. Well, I thought it was actually a really moving chapter, jokes aside, that this moment that you're at uh, suicidal despair, really. And I, I won't ruin it uh, because... Your listeners really should read this book. And, and find out whether I committed suicide uh, or not. But yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I won't tell you how it turns out. But that moment, the thing that really turns you back is point and, and surprising and really charming. Um, it's, but it's, I do have one final question for you. Yes. When you get up to your maker, your savior, Jesus Christ, how are you going to answer killing Arnold Palmer over the place. <laughs> well, you know, God God needed a golfer in heaven, so he took Arnold Palmer away. I think this, I think, I think he this, only had iced tea. I know. This, that, that's the sad thing. From now on, we can't put our iced tea and lemonade together. It's like... <laughs> Well, look, I, I thank you for reading this book. I, I really do appreciate it. Your review was uh, was more than kind. And, of course, you had to say nice things or else we, come, you know, we can actually reach you. For the first time in my life, I meant every word of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, then I appreciate it even more. And I hope that uh, next weekend you can find something better to do with your time, like see. Well, see we all do. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, it's been good talking to you. We're going to send you back around Neptune and back to the writer's room. And there you God go. God help me. Yep. I'll see you later. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Michael Knowles, our cultural correspondent from the writer's room. I can't believe the level of our technology. And when, I, and when I say that, I mean, I can't believe the level of our technology. All right. The great good thing, a secular Jew comes to faith in Christ. You should buy it. It really is every bit as good as he says, he says it is. And I know because I wrote it. Who, who would know better? Right? All right. Never mind. Stuff I like. Uh, you know what I'm going to talk about this week on Stuff I Like? This is kind of weird. I'm going to talk about network TV because TV is going through a 
golden age, but it's all been on cable. And when you go to the Emmys now, the Emmys are almost all cable shows. And that's it's driving the networks insane. And the networks are trying to get edgy, and it really doesn't work. When they try to get edgy, it's just dumb. They did this show over the summer. I talked about it, American Gothic, and they had all these edgy things and all this. But it just came across like some stupid soap opera late at night. You know, I mean, it was fun. I had a good time watching it. But it was so I'm just going to look at network TV doing what it does. Because now this is obviously September. This is the premiere month. This is when used to be a bigger deal because now there's all these other stations. So they're doing Lethal Weapon. And the reason I tuned in the pilot of Lethal Weapon, A, I like the 1987 movie. Uh, but this is uh, with Clayne Crawford uh, playing Mel Gibson, <laughs> Damon Wayans playing Danny Glover. <laughs> and obviously the, the old story from the 1987 film by Shane Black, really clever story about a cop who's so upset that his wife has died that he's suicidal. So he's willing to do anything. He doesn't care. He basically is trying to commit suicide by bad guy. Uh, he's a cop trying to commit suicide by bad guy. So Clayne Crawford, I've talked about before because he is in the show Rectify, and he is a spectacular actor. I mean, he turns in a performance of such subtlety and grace. And I always joke in American, the, uh, the American arts, if you are a really, really serious actor, if you really study, if you study Shakespeare, if you play Shakespeare, you can eventually get to the level of success where all you ever do is pull out a gun and shout, let the girl go. You know, <laughs> that's basically the pinnacle of success. Clayne Crawford has now reached that pinnacle of success. So I watched this Lethal Weapon and... It's good. It's really good. I mean, it's it's is it a dopey action movie type show? Yes, but they really do it well. Crawford's a great actor. Damon Wayans is very funny. Here's a here's a quick scene. The man wants to die, which is fine. His business. But if it was up to me, I'd lock him in a padded white room. But that's not my area of expertise. What is my domain is sustaining the life of one Roger Mayfield Murtaugh. Calm down. That thing's going to explode. IA is investigating, but he'll probably be cleared since the shots were fired from the suspect's weapon. You're not seriously considering putting that man back in the field. It came from upstairs. Someone's protecting this guy. Who? We got a DOA in Griffith Park. Don't give me a ride? I don't really know my way around. Sure, Murtaugh can give you a ride. Is the DOA dead? Dead on arrival. Does it mean something different here? I just want to make sure there's no one else left for you to kill. You and me. Besides, I ain't confiscated my weapon until I'm cleared from the bank, so we gotta kill somebody. It's on you, big guy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good old, good old, good old fashioned buddy cop stuff, and it's really well done. Now, I have to say, I just should add that the pilot was written in part by Shane Black and was directed by that, what's his name, McD? Is that, is that the guy's name? McGee, that's it, McGee. Sorry, wrong letter. Uh, but, but, but And he's you know, a big action director, so they brought in the big guns to start it out. Let's see if they can sustain it. But definitely worth watching, Lethal Weapon. Speaking of lethal weapons, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump debate tonight. We will be there. The entire staff of The Daily Wire will be there. We're playing a drinking game where you drink every time somebody says something intelligent. We're a very abstemious uh, staff here. <laughs> All right, well, we'll be back to talk about it tomorrow. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show.